Sports Business Radio launched in 2004. Brian Berger has interviewed the biggest names in sports and business. Let's step into the Sports Business Radio vault and look back on some of our favorite conversations. This week, we feature conversations with Alex Honnold, Danica Patrick, and Tim Howard. Now, enter the Sports Business Radio vault. Now, here's Brian's interview with Alex Honnold from June 2019. My guest is Alex Honnold. He is a professional adventure rock climber whose free solo ascents of America's biggest cliffs have made him one of the most recognized and followed climbers in the world. Alex became the first climber to free solo Yosemite's 3,000-foot El Capitan wall, and it was captured on film for the documentary Free Solo, which won the Oscar for Best Feature Documentary. Honnold has been profiled by 60 Minutes and the New York Times, as well as featured on the cover of National Geographic. The first climbers to climb El Capitan took 47 days with ropes back in 1958. Two years ago this week, on June 3rd, 2017, Honnold scaled the 3,000-foot granite rock in three hours and 56 minutes. You can follow Alex Honnold on Instagram and Twitter at Alex Honnold. Alex, thanks for joining us on Sports Business Radio. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So I, like many people, have seen the movie Free Solo. It was so visually stunning. And even though we know the ending and we know that you survive, I was still on the edge of my seat the entire time. And one of the things that I thought of is if Steph Curry misses a free throw or Tom Brady overthrows a receiver, it's not life and death. But when you were free soloing El Capitan, there's zero margin for error. What is it like when you're navigating something when there's zero margin for error? What? I think you just have to prepare a little bit more and make sure that it's your day. You know, I mean, the thing actually that, uh, you know, when Steph Curry misses a free throw, the thing is he has to perform on a given day of the week, you know, all the time, day in and day out. I mean, in some ways, when you play ball sports, it's slightly more stressful maybe just because you have to perform when you're told to. With climbing, I got to work for two years towards this goal that I had and then and then do it on the day where I felt perfect, the conditions felt good, everything, everything came together. So, I mean, it's really about picking your moment and, you know, making sure that you're prepared. How do you know when the conditions are perfect? Well, that's that's kind of the secret sauce, I suppose. Um, I mean, and actually, to be honest, the day that I did it, conditions weren't actually perfect, but I felt I felt good, and so I actually felt that psychologically, for me, it was more important just to do it on sort of an average day than to wait for the perfect alignment of, of weather and humidity and all those kinds of things. The, um, I mean, so much of free soloing is psychological. A lot of it's just the, the games you have to play in your own mind to to feel comfortable. Well, and that's what I was going to say. I read. Uh, a quote from the New York Times after your free solo. It says, it wasn't an act of recklessness, but the kind of planning worthy of a moon landing. And when I watched the film, I was like, every single millimeter you had to map out before the climb, and it took uh, planning worthy of a moon landing in order for you to pull this off. Well, I, I would hope that the moon landing is better planned. I mean, I, I, did, I did work my hardest, but uh, but it was basically just you know me and the film crew working on it. Uh, I hope the moon landing has a bigger team and a little more preparation. But uh, you know, I, w- I wouldn't know. The psychological part that you just mentioned, to me, if I first of all, I could never do what you do. But if I was doing it, one of the things I would be most afraid of is that I wouldn't stay present in the moment, and then I would be thinking of the steps ahead in the climb. How do you stay present in the moment? Because, again, one mistake and it's life or death. 
Yeah, actually, that, that's something that I haven't really had to worry. I think in some ways just the, the situation, you know, it kind of requires you to be present that way, and so it just kind of happens naturally because that's how it has to be. Um, you know, I think that's one of the, the few aspects of the climb that I don't really have to work on. Uh, once once I start, I'm just pretty, you know, I'm sort of in the zone. I just I just climb. How long does it take you to get in the zone? Yeah, that kind of depends a little bit. Um, to really be in it, I mean, with with El Cap specifically, I mean, it probably took me the first five or six hundred feet or so. I mean, not until I was through the free blast labs, which is like uh, one of the hardest parts at the bottom. It's one of the key parts of the film. Uh, once I got through that, then I was kind of in it. You know, I was like, okay, I'm feeling great, feeling smooth, just cruising up the wall. But certainly when I left the ground, you know, it took me a little while to trust my feet entirely and to feel confident. In the film, there was the first time that you were looking to make the ascent and then you didn't feel it was perfect and you backed out. A lot of people, including probably myself, if I knew there was a film crew and there was all this effort put into this, I might have said, well, I'm going to try it today because I would have been thinking about everyone else. But in this moment, you have to be selfish because, again, it's life or death. I thought it was actually really brave of you to say, you know what, today's not my day. I'm I'm stepping down and I'm going to do this another day. Yeah. Yeah. It, it wasn't really brave. You know, it just it just was what it was. I mean. In some ways, I think that uh, the pressure that you're talking about was maybe what got me off the ground. You know, like because I knew that that day that I wasn't perfectly prepared. Like I knew the top of the wall really well, but I didn't know the bottom of the wall, uh, you know, well enough, obviously, because that's where I gave up. But um, I think that maybe some of the and it wasn't just the pressure of the film crew; it was also the pressure that the the season was changing. It was uh, becoming winter, and it was kind of you know if I didn't do it then, I'd be done for the season. Uh, just you know, it start to rain and snow, and so. You know, I mean, I, I definitely felt some pressure, which is why I tried it all. But then as soon as I got into the situation where I felt really uncomfortable and it's just like, I don't know how to climb this, you know, I don't feel ready for this, then I just instantly, you know, called it. And and that wasn't a big, you know, that wasn't a big dilemma for me. It was just I instantly was like, I, this is not for me and just gave up. How long, I mean, we talked about the moon landing and the mapping it out and everything. How long, and I know you climbed the wall with a rope with people before you actually did the the real climb, but I'm sure you're probably sitting at home and you're, you're mapping things out there too. Was this a year, two years, three years? How long did the planning take for this climb? Well, the, the film pretty much chronicles the, the full two years that I spent working on it. Right. Um, I think that they, they filmed with me for two years, and that really is basically the full amount of time that I spent actively working. I, so, I mean, I've been dreaming about free-selling El Cap for many years before that. And obviously, I'd climbed El Cap with partners, you know, for, for on other routes and for other reasons and things over the years. But um, but the two years that I was actively working on it is, is shown in the film. You know, I was thinking about this, too, when I knew I was going to interview you. If you think about the history of the world and you think about this is the only person to ever accomplish X there aren't too many things that you can say that about. And for you, you are the only person in the history of the world who has free soloed El Capitan. What is it like being one of those people where you're the only person to accomplish something? Uh, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, I mean, I haven't totally thought about it in that way. But but also, to be fair, there, there are actually a lot of other climbs that I'm you know, the only person in the world to have done. But then... There are plenty of other climbs that I can't do, but some of my friends can't do, you know, things with ropes, things that are physically more difficult. I mean, it's all just kind of balance. You know, there are lots of things that I wish I could do, and there's some things that I'm proud that I've done, and 
you know, I mean, everybody has to sort of navigate their own path, but you know, I'm, 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 I'm proud of that, but it's, um, you know, it's not, it's not that big a deal. See, that's the thing that's so great about you. And I've, I've heard you do some other interviews and I've read stories is it is a big deal, but you don't think it's that, it's just like, Hey, it's another thing and it's not a big deal. Well, so, so it wouldn't be a, I don't think it would be possible if I thought it was that big of a deal. I mean, that's kind of hmm. the interesting thing with free soloing, like I was saying, because it's so psychological. Yeah. Like if I thought that it was a huge, huge deal, then it wouldn't necessarily be a good idea for me to go up there. Hmm. You know, I, I kind of had to prepare to the point where it felt natural and sort of normal. And then, and then once I got to that point and was able to do it, you know, it kind of loses the mystery a little bit because, you know, I've gotten into the point where I'm like, well, that's a totally normal, normal Saturday morning. I think, I think it was a Saturday. Yeah. Um, you know, and so then it's, it's hard to then flip the switch back to, you know, because I spent years when I was younger thinking that it would be the craziest thing ever done and that it would be amazing and, you know, that it would be the most impressive climbing of all time. But then by the time I did all the preparation, it certainly didn't seem that way anymore. And so then once you do it, you can't really go back. You know, you just, you're like, well, you know, now it seems kind of normal. Yeah, that's a really good point. Maybe you psych yourself out if you think about it too much or you put too much emphasis yeah, that, that, on it. That, that's exactly. I mean, that, that was... Uh, an important part of my, my mental preparation was to not put it on too big of a pedestal, you know, was to keep it, uh, you know, proportional because I mean, El, El Cap, you know, it's, it's difficult and big, but it's not, it's not impossibly difficult and big, you know, like, and I knew that it was possible. So I didn't want to elevate it too much psychologically, you know, by putting it on a pedestal so high, like that would be, you know, that would be impossible. I'm like, no, I mean, it's possible. I just have to work at it. I mean, you've shown that pretty much anything is possible, but is there, a rock that you look at and say, you know, I did this, but there's no way I'm doing that one. Um, not, not right now, but honestly, I need to, uh, you know, I've been traveling and supporting the film so much that, uh, I, I need to get back to just climbing all the time and sort of see what, what I get into and, uh, you know, what, what I get inspired by again, you know, we'll, we'll see how that stuff shapes up. And do you plan on free soloing again, or are you using rope from here on out? No, I've been free soloing easy stuff sometimes. I mean, there's a real distinction between cutting edge free soloing like El Cap and and casual fun free soloing that mm-hmm. you do, you know, after a day of work or something just to sort of unwind and have fun on the rock. And so I'm sure I'll do casual free soloing my entire life just because it's such a lovely way to climb. Um, you know, we'll see if I keep doing cutting edge soloing. Well, so that was one of my thoughts when I saw free solo. I was like, thank God that he did it. What an accomplishment. Again, the only person who's ever done El Capitan free solo, but I hope he never free solos again. Is there something in you that that says, I need the next thing, or do you feel so satisfied with that that you can say, you know what, I'm fine being an ambassador for rock climbing and casually rock climbing. I don't need to do cutting-edge free soloing again. Well, I mean, I don't know if I need to do cutting So over the last... 15 years or so that I've been a professional climber, there have definitely been years where I haven't sold anything serious, and there have been some years where I've sold a, a bunch of serious routes. And so, you know, that kind of comes and goes depending on personal motivation and, and, you know, my personal goals. So, you know, right now I'm not hungry for any specific big free solo objectives, but, um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if at some point in the future I... I, I don't know, typically I, I sort of ebb and flow between uh, focusing on just hard physical climbing, you know, climbing with a rope, bouldering, uh, you know, training indoors, things like that. And then 
you know, I can do that for a while, but eventually it just feels slightly boring. And then I need to go on, you know, an expedition to go do alpinism or explore, you know, do something bigger outside or potentially free solo something big. You know, I mean, basically I just, you know, I like my climbing to be sort of exciting sometimes. Yeah, no, I get it. Uh, in the movie, it, it talks about your love of rock climbing and it, you know, goes back to your childhood and, and things like that. But for our listeners who may not have seen the movie yet, maybe you can go back to when you were a child and, and how did you want to get into rock climbing? What made you want to be a rock climber? Well, actually, nothing really as a child, nothing made me want to be a rock climber. I just wanted to climb on things. I love climbing trees and buildings and, you know, play structures and walking around on banisters and things like that, you know, handrails. Um, and so, you know, when a climbing gym opened in Sacramento, my parents saw it as a great opportunity to sort of structure my climbing in a way that, that would be a little less, uh, you know, less likely to get me arrested. And so they took me indoors and, and so I started rock climbing, you know, but I mean, it's all on plastic indoors. And, and then that's when it really took and that's, you know, kind of when I became a rock climber. And when did you say, I want to go from the gym to get me outside on, on the real rocks, and, and now I even want to do some free soloing? Yeah, it's, it's interesting, actually, because in the, in the mid-'90s when I started climbing in the gym, climbing gym culture was a lot different than it is now in that it was mostly for real rock climbers to train for rock climbing. You know, there wasn't as much of the, the urban climbing culture. And so pretty much from the get-go, I was surrounded by people who were climbing indoors as a means to, to climb better outdoors. So it was kind of always the goal to go outdoors and climb things. So I remember, you know, but I was limited by the fact I didn't have a car and couldn't drive. So a, friend, a few friends would take me up into the mountains and take me climbing on the weekends, things like that. And, you know, it felt like the gym was always, you know, designed to teach you how to climb outdoors. We're going to get into your relationship with uh, El Cap. You just joined the board of directors in a minute. But for parents out there who have kids and, and, you know, again, I'm in Portland, Oregon, so rock climbing is pretty big up here and the rock climbing gym culture is big up here. But what do you think the traits are that you need to have to want to be a rock climber, whether it's indoor or outdoor? I think the most important trait and certainly the one that I had was a desire to climb. You know, I mean, I, I think that physically you can kind of manage, you know, basically there are climbers of all different shapes and sizes. You know, some people get by on brute strength. Some people are extremely flexible. Some, you know, it's kind of all different builds and all different shapes. But ultimately, I think to be a good climber, you just have to love climbing. You know, you have to enjoy going and, and doing the thing all the time. I mean, and, and that's what has always, you know, I've never really had any particular physical gift. You know, I've never been been a prodigy of any kind. I just have always loved climbing, which means that I've, I've spent, you know, five or six days a week climbing for 20 years or more. And so, you know, eventually you start to get, get better at it. Yeah. And I think, as you said earlier, as far as I see, like the mental aspect of climbing is important too, because there has to be a focus and a concentration because especially if you're outside, if you make a mistake, you know, you could hurt yourself even if you are on a rope. Yeah, yeah, it's true. I mean, and, and beyond that even, I mean, there's also a certain willpower involved with it. You know, a lot of people who are really, really strong don't, you know, sort of underperform their physical limits. And then some people who aren't necessarily that strong, but who try with 100% of their being, you know, they fight to the absolute death. You know, sometimes, you know, basically anybody can, can climb in their own way. You know, some people just try their hardest. Some people overpower things. I mean, everybody sort of finds their own path in climbing. I think the important thing is just to, to enjoy the sport, you know, go and try it, have a good time and, and, you know, see where it takes you. 
So Free Solo obviously has exposed a lot more people to rock climbing. I would say it's made it more mainstream. Obviously not the kind of rock climbing you did in that movie, but I think people are pretty psyched to go out there and at least try it. You recently joined the board of El Cap. Uh, they're the parent company of Earth Treks and Planet Granite, world-class climbing facilities around the country. Tell us about that partnership. Well, so... Um, yeah, I mean, it's kind of a long story, I guess, but, but uh, you know, I've gym climbed my entire life, and I've always loved climbing indoors. I've climbed in climbing gyms all over the world, uh, and actually, particularly with the, with the film tour, because I've been traveling so much promoting the film, I've, I've sampled, you know, probably half the climbing gyms in the world, it feels like, <laughs> you know, because every city I land in, I just go to the gym. And so, uh, I've, I mean, I've kind of personally always, you know, secretly fantasized about a climbing gym chain that, that you know, basically, I, I just want quality climbing gyms everywhere I go. You know, and I want some consistency. I want some, you know, consistent quality. I want good route setting. I want nice, open, clean facilities with nice light. You know, basically, there's certain things that make some climbing gyms way nicer than others. And, and I like to climb in those kinds of gyms. And so, you know, basically, El Cap is, is you know, attempting to build exactly that. You know, I mean... Earthrex and Planet Granite are both gyms that, that have have that kind of consistent quality. And, uh, you know, and they're looking to expand them further around the country. And, you know, basically, I was, I was sort of honored to, to help with that in some way. I mean, I kind of think that it's the future. It's the direction that climbing is going regardless. I'd like to see it go there in the right way. You know, I'd like to see it done well. Yeah, I mean, I think you're a great ambassador for the sport. Uh, I'm based in Portland, Oregon, as I told you before. There's one of your facilities is here. Uh, I'll go try it out. And I have a 14-year-old daughter. She'd probably love to try it out, too. I think it's great exercise, and, you know, it's a safe environment. I think it makes all the sense in the world that, that you would be the ambassador. The other thing that I think helps your cause here is 2020, Tokyo, uh, rock climbing is going to be a demo sport, right? Yeah, that's correct. Um and I think that that's probably going to drive even more people to climbing. Though, though, just to be clear, the the growth of climbing and the, the crazy growth in the climbing gym industry, I don't think that's you know 100% related to Free Solo or really any of the other climbing films, films like the Dawn Wall or, or Valley Uprising, other sort of big climbing documentaries that have been released in the last couple of years. Um, you know, I mean, I think those definitely help fuel climbing, but I think that it might. You know, I, I don't know if there's any research on this. I, I could be wrong. But I think a lot of it is bigger demographic trends, you know, urbanization, people in cities looking for ways to, to work out with mm-hmm. the community. I mean, I think that, that climbing in some ways taps into a lot of things that I think made CrossFit super popular. You know, a real sense of community, a sense of tribe, you know, and a nice way to stay fit indoors that people can do, you know, in, in cities. And so, you know, I don't think it's just the film blowing up climbing. I think that, that climbing is sort of on the up and up right now, regardless. Uh, you know, the film sort of tapped into that at a good time, but I think the Olympics will even more so. So since the film, and you said you've been out promoting the film, when you show up randomly at a rock climbing facility, what's the reaction that you get? Do people recognize you? Do they say, hey, let's see how fast you can climb the wall? Do they leave you alone? What's the reception you're getting? Uh, It depends a little bit on where I am, but yeah, certainly people recognize me. (laughs) <laughs> um, I mean, you know, riding the subway in New York City has become a bit of a, you know, I'm kind of getting recognized everywhere now. It feels like like airports are all sort of a, so I mean, climbing gyms are are definitely a, a hot spot for activity. It really, yeah, it just depends where I am and how, how chill people are. And uh, but honestly, that's why I like big facilities because I like going and 
talking myself into some back corner and just doing my own thing. What's that like for you going from, I mean, I read a story, maybe it was true or not. You were, you know, living basically off of $15,000 a year and you were living as a minimalist in your van. And now everywhere you go, even on subways in New York, you're recognized. That's got to be uh, a change in your life and a transition for you. How have you adjusted? Uh, I'm like, indeed, that is a change. <laughs> I mean, it's just, uh, it's, yeah, I mean, you just deal. You know, I mean, in, in some ways it's been okay because it's been gradual because even before the film, I was recognized in climbing gyms, certainly, and, you know, occasionally on the street. And you know, just because I've done so many other climbing films over the years and, you know, been on the cover of National Geographic and featured on 60 Minutes and all these random, you know, media things that, you know, it certainly gave me a, a hint of what what a feature film would be like. Though, honestly, I kind of underestimated what, what would really happen with the film coming out. But, um, yeah, I mean, you just, you know, life just changes and you just go with the flow and you just got to learn as you go. What do most um, people, what's their feedback to you? What do they say when they see you? Oh, I mean, actually, right now, most people are just saying, uh, for the most part, people who approach me are people who were moved by the film in some way. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, most most people talk to me about, you know, how much they enjoyed the film or how much it meant to them or, you know, how it inspired their kids or whatever else. Uh, I don't know. I mean, you know, not, not too cynical, but at a certain point when, when all day, every day, you have people coming up to you saying how amazing you are and how inspired they are by you, at a certain point, it all just glazes over into a sea of, you know, I'm just like, oh, cool. You know, because, uh, I don't know. So I kind of developed this strategy. So yeah, this is all maybe slightly off topic, but I kind of developed the strategy kind of a long time ago, which was where I just, when people come up and, and gush about things, I just think of them as, as talking about a character in the film as opposed to me, the person who they don't actually know because they've never met. Hmm. You know, there's like a, and, and it's interesting because the documentary is, is a very honest portrayal of who I am as a person. But at the same time, it's still a 90 minute film showing two years of life. You know, I mean, it's still like a tiny slice of, of those two years. And so people watch it and they feel like they know me. They feel like they have a good sense of me, but you know, but they never actually met me. And so when people gush, I'm like, oh, they're gushing about the character in the film which, you know, is very, very similar to me, but isn't isn't the me that they're meeting, you know? I totally get it. I think one of the things, and this is just my outside perspective, and obviously I've never met you in person, but what you did was such an incredible human feat that I think it inspired people, whether it's rock climbing or something else, that they say, wow, what an inspiration Alex was. If he could do that, maybe I can do you know, my version of climbing El Cap, Cap in my own life. That's what I think it is. It's not that's, so... No, and, and that's what I like hearing the most from people, honestly. I've had, you know, people at screenings come up and say that it inspired them to sign up for a marathon or things like that. Right. And obviously, they're not going free soloing, but but exactly like you said, they're just seeking out the big challenges in their life that, that they'd, you know, sort of been lagging on for whatever reason. Yeah. No, I think it's it's super great. Going back to the Tokyo Olympics, what are the disciplines that are going to be demoed there? Uh, and that's not something you would compete in, is it? No, I won't compete. It's kind of like a gymnastics in that the the contenders are all you know teenagers right now, basically, or maybe early twenties. But um, you know, I'm 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 an old man compared to <laughs> all the Olympic competitors right now. But um, so the format is is a combined format. So there's already a World Cup circuit where people compete in in three different disciplines: uh, lead climbing, speed climbing, and bouldering. Uh, you know, I mean, I can explain each of those if you want. But um, but the Olympic format is a combination of the three. 
which actually kind of caused an uproar within the climbing community when it was announced that way. It had, I think it has to do with the limited medal count. You know, basically climbing only got one medal. So that rather mm. than sort of unfairly favor one format, they just combined all three. But the thing is, in climbing, people always specialize in, in their specific disciplines. And, and pretty much nobody, well, actually, uh, bouldering and lead climbing, there's a lot of crossover. You know, some people do both, but nobody crosses over into speed climbing. So by combining the speed into it, it, uh, it forced people to totally change the way they train. But what's kind of, an, which I don't really mind, actually. I mean, in some ways, since it's competition, it's all arbitrary rules anyway. So, you know, as long as it's the same rules for everybody, it's a fair competition, you know. So I, I think it's kind of fine. And I think for spectators, that'll be nice, actually, to just see the full array of climbing. But the thing that's sort of unfortunate about it is that I think that already in Paris in 2024, they've changed the format again to cut speed out uh, or separate it out for a separate medal, which now means that, you know, some people are training one way and then, you know, as soon as Tokyo happens, everyone will start training a different way. Hmm. You know, I just feel like there needs to be some consistency in the sport, you know, because really it's a whole generation of young kids, you know, focusing on certain aspects of climbing, you know, with the hopes that one day they might be great at this. You know, I just feel like the rules all need to stay the same so that people you know, train for the right things or whatever. This might be a stupid question, so forgive me, but is there like a governing body of rock climbing that determines the rules or, you know, like you did with free solo, you just go get on the rock and you plan for that. And, and, you know, I don't think there's a governing body saying you can or can't do this. (laughs) Um, So for outdoor climbing, uh, there's definitely no governing body. It's just uh, climbing is sort of, governed by the community you know there are definitely certain ethical norms and and ways in which people climb the, the most important one is pretty much always just honesty as long as people uh honestly report what they've done then then the community sort of judges it however however they want you know as long as you're straight up about what you do you can kind of do whatever as long as you don't damage the rock or damage the environment and so um yeah, the outdoors is relatively simple in that way. For the indoors, I'm actually not totally sure what the governing body is. I, I should know, but I just don't. It's confusing acronyms. It's like the Olympic, you know, whatever, the international IPCC, you know. No, that's climate change. Um, I don't know. It's like some big acronym, and I'm actually not even totally sure. You know, because then each nation has its own uh, governing body, you know, sports federation for, for climate. Wow. But, uh, yeah, basically, I don't know. I, I haven't competed. You know, when I was when I was young doing youth competitions, it was all a much smaller and simpler world. You know, it was just USA climbing. Right. See, you've blown it up now. It's so big that uh, it needs all these different... No, that's not me. <laughs> that's, no. Just, that's a lot of things. I know, but, like, there's a certain, like, if I look at rock climbing, I'm on the outside. It's not something that I've studied or am an expert on, but... You know, I'll use an analogy here. Like for people who like golf, a lot of them for many years have looked at Tiger Woods and they're like, Tiger Woods is a good golfer. He relates to the casual fan or they relate to him. And he's become kind of the the symbol of golf in this country. I see you, no matter what the discipline, no matter indoor or outdoor, has you've become the symbol of rock climbing in the United States and probably the world. So um, I think when people think rock climbing, they think Alex Honnold. I mean, you know, I I don't know. I, I don't know how to respond. So I actually stayed up way too late last night reading this amazing uh, biography of Tiger Woods. It's funny. You did you really? Him. That's so yeah, yeah, ironic really that good. we just brought that up. What did you think of his yeah. biography? 
I, I, I'm so into it. It's amazing. I mean, it's just, it's so, it's so crazy. I mean, it's just a different, I, I really enjoy reading about other types of athletes because yeah. it's just such a different experience than climbing. Because, you know, I mean, he, as soon as he turned pro, it's like as soon as he signed the papers, it's like that $60 million. You're just like, whoa, the golf world is such a different deal than, you know, with climbing when you go pro, you know, most people consider yourself a professional when you kind of make a living of some kind. So as soon as you start getting free product and a little bit of food for, or a little bit of money for food, sort of like, oh, you know, I'm a professional climber. I'm making 15 grand and getting free climbing <laughs> shoes and a free jacket. You know, and you're just like, man, the golf world, it's like getting 60 million is crazy. And that's, and that's a year one. That's literally with the sign of the paper. You know, it's like, I haven't even gotten to the, you know, him, him winning all the masters. Yeah. And the other thing with him too, is like training with the Navy SEALs. And he had some interesting ways of training that, that weren't of the norm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, his dad was a green beret. Right. But yeah. Yeah. And though, honestly, reading all this stuff about his upbringing, I'm like, I'm kind of glad that my dad wasn't a green beret who was training me for psychological warfare as a child. <laughs> you know, and I agree that I probably would perform better as a climber, but, but I don't know if I'd lead a better life, you know? Yeah. I want to go back to El Capitan. So I, I didn't know this till I was doing my research for this interview. Uh, so almost exactly a year after you did the free solo, you and Tommy Caldwell go set a speed record on El Capitan. Uh, what was it? 58 minutes and seven seconds that you guys. No, no. Uh, one hour. Or one hour, 58 minutes and seven seconds. Yeah. I mean, that's. That's crazy because, you know, I also found in my research that the first people in 1958 who used ropes and went up El Capitan 47 days, it took them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, wow. That's But for people who free soloed, like, a lot of people would have said, I own you. Like, I did this. But you went up a year later and you're like, I'm going to set the speed record, too, just to show El Cap that, like, I completely own it. No, that's that's not really the spirit of it. Though. I mean, Tommy and I had just always sort of wondered if it was possible to go sub two hours on the nose. Okay, yeah, I had held the speed record on that route previously, and then some people broke it, but but they broke it by a little bit, and it was set at two nineteen. And so, you know, trying to go sub two hours felt like a really big reach. Um, you know, in some ways, we sort of equated it to the to the two hour marathon. Right. Um, though, as it turns out, it's it's not even remotely similar to the two hour marathon. I think that when we get that close to human limits, the physiological limits, the time will be more like, well, what you just said, closer to probably 58 minutes on the route, you know, instead of an hour 58. But, um, you know, I think there's a lot more room for improvement. But but basically, I mean, that's kind of the whole thing about climbing and what makes climbing so enjoyable is, is improving, you know, pushing yourself, yeah. getting better at it. And so, you know, just because I free soloed it doesn't mean that I don't want to keep improving. Yeah. So it is a little bit like golf. I do play golf, so you can play the same course over and over again, but you can want to get better on that same course, and it doesn't well, mean no, it's going to get the, boring. No, that's why I, that's a big part of the growth of climbing gyms, I think. I think that's why it's important to have good setting in climbing gyms, mm-hmm. you know, root setting, like to have nice roots on the wall, because you know people love the feeling of improvement. People love going into the home gym and just working on problems that eluded them the previous time they climbed. They're like, this time I'm going to try it a little differently. I'm going to try some different technique. I've been training, you know, whatever it takes. But I mean, I think that's a big part of why why the sport has been blowing up so much is that people love that feeling of improvement. I mean, it, you know, I mean, I think that's kind of hardwired into the human brain that, you know, that little, yeah, that little jolt of, of pleasure every time you feel a little bit better. Yeah. Um, since this is a sports business show, I'll ask you about your sponsors. I know you work with the North Face, obviously the 
the very uh, recognizable red North Face shirt you wear in the movie, uh, Black Diamond, yep. La Sportiva, Goal Zero, Stride Health, and Maxim Ropes. And again, you're on the board at uh, El Capitan, the climbing gym. Yeah, and actually, and actually, most significantly, maybe uh, I'm also sponsored by Rivian and uh, an electric trucks company. I don't know if you've heard of them, but um, they're basically launching. Well, they've already sort of premiered their their electric trucks and SUVs, but um, they aren't actually fulfilling orders till next year. But so, uh, yeah, it's kind of awesome. And they're also partnered with my foundation, uh, the Holland Foundation, which supports solar projects. And so, it's kind of a nice alignment with um, them providing batteries and storage for you know the solar projects that we're supporting. No, I was going to say I've paid close attention to your foundation and what you're doing with the solar projects and. I tip my hat to you. It's it's really great stuff that I think could have a long term impact on the world. And uh, you know, I see a lot of things going that way. And you obviously uh, have used your platform to support all of that. How are things going with your foundation? I would imagine that's grown since the movie. Yeah, that that's actually the one thing that I'm really happy about with the film is that the foundation has definitely blown up, and uh, and so we're able to support a lot more projects in a, in a much bigger way, and we're you know, taking on more interesting and, and more complex projects now. Um, like I just said, you know, partnering with Rivian to provide storage for for uh, the... We're doing a project in Puerto Rico that, that will potentially be the island's first cooperative microgrid. Um, and so we'll provide the, the panels and the storage while we're sort of help bring all the partners together to make it happen. But, um, but yeah, basically we're taking on much more complex and, and interesting projects that can potentially have a real impact on the world. And so, I mean, that's that's pretty exciting for me. And tell me a little bit more about the trucks. These are solar-powered trucks? No, 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 no. So Rivian is just making electric trucks. So okay, electric think, trucks. You know, yeah, think like an F-150, but but electric. That's very amazing. Very range, very rugged. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're really nice. They're really nice trucks. Um, they're, they're building them as uh, electric adventure vehicles. Because there's really a space in the electric car market for for rugged vehicles. You know, I mean... Because you look at some of the other electric car manufacturers, and they're slightly—I mean, basically they're more urban-oriented. You know, they're great for commuting around town, but they're not necessarily something that you would take in the mountains and put your muddy mountain bike into or something. Yeah. And so, um, yeah. So that's basically the where Rivian is approaching. I mean, electric o- car. obviously, you're out in the environment all the time, so it makes sense that you'd want to reduce the carbon footprint and do things like this. But, you know, at what point in your life did you really start saying? I have a platform and I want to make a difference in this area. And, you know, starting a foundation is no easy feat, and that's a lot of work in and of itself. Yeah, well, when you live in your car, you got a bunch of time to work on things like that. <laughs> you know, but, um, but, no, I mean, I started the foundation when uh, – I mean, honestly, I started the foundation kind of before I really had a platform and things like that. You know, I mean, I was a professional climber, but, but I wasn't – you know, I wasn't in mainstream news or anything. But I just felt like it was an important thing to do. It was the right thing to do. You know, I felt like I felt almost a moral obligation to do something positive in the world, and 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 I was able to, so I sort of felt obligated to to do what I was able to do. Uh, you know, I've, yeah, just you know, I sleep better at night knowing that I'm doing my best. No, that's great. You're making you're making a big impact on the world, whether you recognize it or not, with how you've inspired people to achieve things that maybe they didn't think they could achieve. And, you know, with your foundation, I think you're doing things that are going to have a long lasting impact long after we're gone. So congratulations. Hopefully. No, I I think you can already see it. So, you know, congratulations on that. Um, 
you seem like someone in the film, you know, you're you're very focused, but you're not someone who's super outspoken. And now that you're promoting your movie and you're an ambassador for some of the things we've discussed today, you've kind of got to come out of your shell a little bit. Has that been difficult? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, we all learn and grow over time. Um, yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, when I look at how I was in, in school, you know, terrified to speak in public, terrified to be in front of the class, you know, any, anything like that. And then now how comfortable I am standing in front of a, you know, pretty, pretty much any stage and just speaking about whatever I'm supposed to speak about. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's definitely been some, some coming out of the shell. But I mean, in a lot of ways, it's, I mean, that's just practice. It's just repetitive exposure. You just have to do something over and over and eventually you start to feel pretty comfortable with it, which is, you know, it's funny because that's exactly what the film shows, you know, two years of practice and eventually you get pretty good at something. Yeah. So uh, I see, I heard an interview, I think it was on uh, Lance Armstrong's podcast, and you said you live in Las Vegas, you live in a neighborhood, and when you go to the store, instead of walking down the street, you climb along the wall to the store. Are you still doing that? Yeah, yeah, that's just kind of by chance that uh, that it's the fastest way to get to my, my supermarket <laughs> is to go over the back fence. And I asked the neighbor, and she's just like, oh, I mean, you know, and technically I'm not going into anybody's property because I'm just walking on the top of the fence. But, you know, it saves probably two minutes on my walk. So, so. And if and I, cool. yeah, and if I lived in that neighborhood and Alex Honnold was on my wall, I'd be like, that's sweet. I wouldn't be upset about it. it. I would think it's great. I think, I, th- I think hardly anybody in my neighborhood knows who I am, which is kind of ideal, I think. <laughs> you know, it's all, it's mostly old ladies just kind of, <laughs> you know, that if it's, it's uh, for, for Vegas, it's a slightly older neighborhood. So it's all original inhabitants, you know, folks that have been there since the 80s. So it's all old ladies now. So last question for you. What's kind of a typical day for you now? I know you said you still like working out and climbing and, you know, I know you're promoting the film and, and things of that nature, but what's a typical day for you now? I mean, it really depends. So, you know, when I'm in work mode or travel mode, like right now I'm in Los Angeles because, uh, you know, I've been doing Emmy events for the film for National Geographic. And so this morning I'm going to go to the climbing gym and then go to the airport. And then uh, I left my car outside Yosemite, so I'll be back in Yosemite this evening. And then actually hopefully climbing El Cap tomorrow if the, weather is, if the weather allows. But then, you know, I only have a couple of days in Yosemite and then another, some other events. And, you know, it's basically just balancing, you know, bouncing back and forth between. It's, it's a little bit weird because it's kind of like jumping between different worlds. You're going from big adventure outdoors and then all of a sudden you're in front of a theater talking to a bunch of people. Yeah. But... Uh, but that's, you know, I basically just have to seize the moments that I can to go outside and, and do the things that I love to do. Well, and you probably like, I know if I'm around a lot of people or at events, I, I kind of like some quiet time and just, and to, <laughs> it, it would seem to me that when you're climbing, like that's your, your solace, that's your, your time where it's just you and the rock, right? Yeah, no, that's exactly. I mean, and even the climbing gym can, can fill that to some extent, fill that need. Hmm. You know, I mean, I love having a few hours of just climbing, you know, and so whether it's indoors or outdoors, uh, you know, I just want to, you know, I mean, I, I don't want to say get in the zone because that sounds a little too over the top, but, but, you know, focus 100% on what I'm doing. And so, you know, I can do that on any kind of rock. It's just, you know, some gyms are so crowded though. And though, honestly, I mean, I was just in Yosemite a couple of days ago and I uh, went for a lovely walk in the mountains and the trail just had so many people on it and they'd all seen the film and everybody stopping me and you're just like, oh man, it's hard to get into the the mountain experience when, when you're getting stopped on the trail all the time. 
Yeah. You know, but basically, I'll, you know, I'll figure it out. And how, to... how are things, you know, a big part of Free Solo was your relationship with your girlfriend. And, you know, even the filmmakers, Jimmy Chin and the friends, so nerve wracking for them to see you do that. I'm sure they're probably happy to have you not free soloing as much and, and certainly doing things like that. But that's the thing that it, it, you have people who care about you and, and I'm sure that takes a toll on them too. Yeah, though. I mean, I had people who cared about me before I, you know, free soloed all cap and, and I will after, I mean, to some extent, free soloing has always been a pretty personal choice. Right. You know, I mean, I always know that there are people who care and yet, you know, and yet I'm choosing to do something that I love to do it regardless. You know, but but I care about myself a lot as well. You know, I mean, I'm I'm doing my very best to not fall off, and that's kind of always what I come back to with free selling is that, you know, even if it's putting a lot of stress on people that care about me, I'm like, you know, I'm already doing the absolute best that I can to, to stay safe. No, and you could tell in the movie that you're you're putting, you know, like that New York Times uh, quote, it wasn't an act of recklessness, but the kind of planning worthy of a moon landing. You could tell all of the calculations and thought and care that you put into that. It wasn't like you just woke up and said, hey, I'm going to go climb El Capitan today. So that that was good to see as well. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I mean, and that's one of the things that I was hoping for from the film is to to make it clear that it is a lot of work, you know, that it's not reckless. Well, congratulations on everything. You've worked very, very hard to get to where you are. Uh, you are a true inspiration, whether you know you want to hear that or not. You've inspired a lot of people. Uh, I was absolutely in awe of watching the movie. If you ever make it to Portland, Oregon, I would love to meet you in person. But uh, Alex Honnold, thanks for joining us on Sports Business Radio. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the chat. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Hey, everyone. Brian Berger here. Roan is the new official menswear partner of Sports Business Radio. I love their product. I've been a fan for a long time. Did you know David Stern was one of their first investors? Roan makes the absolute highest quality, best fitting, and most comfortable performance-driven clothing for men. Their entire line places emphasis on an active, balanced, and purpose-driven lifestyle. I'm wearing my spar joggers. I've got them in uh, heather gray. I've got them in navy. I've got my moleskin commuter slim pant. I've got my regular black commuter pant. I've got my dress shirts. So when I'm out in in in-person meetings, I have the nicer Roan product to wear. But most of the time, I'm working from home. And I've got my rain long sleeve gray heather camo. I've got my rain long sleeve hoodies. I am wearing the shorts for workouts, the seven inch Mako shorts. So I'll tell you what, from top to bottom, whether it's casual or business wear, Roan has me covered. I know they're going to have you covered too. And Roan is offering Sports Business Radio podcast listeners 15% off your purchase. Go to Roan.com, R-H-O-N-E.com and enter code SBR15 at checkout, like Sports Business Radio 15, SBR15 at checkout. Receive 15% off your purchase. That's Roan.com, R-H-O-N-E.com and enter promo code SBR15 at checkout. Now, here's Brian's interview with Danica Patrick from April 2021. 
My guest is Danica Patrick. She is the most successful woman in the history of American open wheel racing. She's the host of the Pretty Intense podcast, which you can find on iTunes or podcast platforms everywhere. Danica is joining us on behalf of Power Up Premium Trail Mix. You can find her on Instagram and Twitter at Danica Patrick. Danica, thanks for joining me on Sports Business Radio. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing really well. Um, when I think of one word to describe you, I think of fearless. Mm. You were racing go-karts at age 10 against adults. You moved away at age 16 to England. I have a 16-year-old daughter, and I can't even imagine putting her on a plane to move away to another country. And then you're an entrepreneur now, which takes a lot of bravery and, and guts. Is fearless an accurate adjective to describe you? No, I don't think so. I think it has more to do because I think everyone has fear. I think it has maybe a little bit more to do with your relationship with it and your perception and your sort of understanding of fear. Like I get scared to do things too. I mean, my first instinct is scared. Like I get scared to do a podcast when I do them. I'm like, oh my God, I don't want to look like an idiot to this person who's a legend, whoever I'm interviewing. Um, <clears throat> so I, I mean, I get nervous. I get concerned a little here and there, of course, like anyone. But um, I also know that on the other side of that discomfort is growth. And it's something that's super important to me. So, and also joy, right? So like even in a race car, when you go out and you really push it, uh, you know, and you, you find the edge and you find the limit, you go faster and it's rewarding, or you have a tough race and you, you know, you get done and you feel so relieved. And so I think it's sort of, you know, there's like a really age old expression of, um, finding comfort in the discomfort. And so I think that, I think that fear is a lot of discomfort. And I feel like my whole life has been spent trying to find comfort in that discomfort. It's interesting because again, on the on the surface, you would go, wow, a 10-year-old competing against adults in go-karts, <laughs> moving to another country to race cars. And then I'm an entrepreneur as well. So being an entrepreneur, you've got to stare down failure in the face and say, I'm not going to fail. I'm going to succeed. So you've got to have some pretty brave, courageous traits to be able to do those things that I just mentioned. Perhaps stubborn, because ah. it's not actually that it's not actually that you don't fail because there's a lot of failure on the way to success. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not a matter of can't fail. It's a matter of I am prepared to keep failing. Right. Because it's not who... Um, it's who keeps getting up and getting up and getting up. And, and ultimately there's information in all the losses, there's information in all the failures. And so if you can find the gems and grow from that and learn from that, then essentially you get to the point where you do start winning or you are successful and you, you come out on top. So again, it's kind of like your thought for me, it feels like my thought process orientation with, with the failures, with, um, Fear, with discomfort and just knowing that uh, it's kind of, I guess maybe like, it's like a little bit of a roller coaster, you know, you're kind of riding that sort of like, Oh God. And then, and then you kind of go, okay. But it's, I guess it kind of, I look at it like, cause I'm kind of visual. So I look at it kind of like a ratchet ladder where it's like, you kind of keep going up and up and up. And so I actually was just thinking about this today. I, I, 
just passing thought of the fact that my life, I've, I've, I've said this for a long time that my life changes in ways that I would never expect every couple of years. And that's a scary thought because you think everything that you have is what you want. And, um, but it's, I realize now that it's because I say yes to growth. I say yes to progress. I say yes to evolving. And sometimes almost every time it means change. And so your life is going to look different when that happens. Where does that come from? The resilience that you have and, and saying yes and being able to ride the roller coaster and always bouncing back up for, for more challenges. I would have said that that was something that is in me and I just have it. But then I had a friend, um, I was sitting down with her last year and we were having lunch and she's similar and, 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 and able to cope and cope with stress. And, you know, like, I feel super grateful that, um, anxiety is not a part of my life. And I know that that's something that people struggle with. And, um, just this sort of like, go like super aggressive, confident, fearless, um, uh, mindset and the strength, maybe strength is like just the kind of nicer encompassing word. And she pointed out she's, she did ballet. She was a ballerina and she pointed out how tough that world is and how tough my world was and how early we did it, how young we were when we did it. So I guess that gave me a little bit of a new perception of my strength because I've been practicing that and put in tough situations since I was 10. Mm. So, you know, I feel like, you know, I, I think there's, you know, somebody might've had a, a more softer sort of upbringing, something with maybe even more like, you know, tenderness, coddling, even whatever, something that allows them some comfort and protection and I think that when you're thrown in the deep end, you got to figure it out. And so I just learned how to do that really early. And <clears throat> I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for everything. All my, all, all the things that have happened, all the, of course, the good, because it's easy to be grateful for the good, but all the bad too, because I feel like, um, I feel like it's me, you know, it's really made me into who I am. And also there's a season for everything. Like, like, you know, there's a season season for working. There's a season for relationships. There's a season for like being really joyful. There's a season for, you know, just stressing about something. There's just like seasons like mm -hmm. there are in real life and nature, right? There's just seasons for things. And so I think that the things that I've dealt with that are tough have really served me well. And it's not a matter of sort of dismissing them or getting rid of them or not wanting them to be a part of me. It's going, okay, that season's over with and it's time for a new one. A lot of athletes I've talked to on this show over the years, during their career, some of them get the fact that they're auditioning for their next career, right? You're building the relationships for when you're not competing anymore. Others wait till the end and they're like, okay, now I got to think about what I'm going to do next. You strike me as someone who was thinking about the next phase of your life during your racing career. Is that correct? And, and if so, what did you do to try and lay the groundwork for some of the things that you're doing now? 
Bobby Ray Hall told me a long, 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 long time ago uh, to, that he just not spend all my money. Number one. And number two, he said <laughs> that he always wanted to make sure that he could maintain the same kind of lifestyle after racing as he had during. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that sort of planted the seed of other businesses and, and the fact that there's, I actually, it's not really, for me, it was a little bit of a twist on it because I felt I'm very fortunate. I did really well. Um, but it was more a matter of using the platform when I had it to start sort of like, to like, let that sort of, um, roll into the next thing or use that as an opportunity to show what I was doing next. And so, um, so that's kind of how I, how I used it, but I just, I really like doing, and I like, I like, I like, um, growing. I like learning. I like helping. I like being inspiring. So really all of my businesses are rooted in, in, in some sort of form of inspiration, um, at their core, which I've always felt like it's really important to have businesses that have long-term, like long, far out their goals, because if it's to interview someone in particular, or if it's to make X amount of money or what, whatever that may be, that's a really, that has an end point and a ceiling essentially, at least in my mind. And so I like having, I like orienting the things that I'm doing uh, around, uh, what's the right word? Um, a mission as opposed to an end point. Mm, I like that. I want to talk about your pretty intense podcast. Mm -hmm. I love it. I've become addicted to it. It's in my rotation now. Uh, I love the episode with Amy Lee from Evanescence. Thank you. Uh, Gary V was fantastic, fellow entrepreneur. Um, I just think it's a deeply psychological podcast. And don't take offense to this, but while you were racing, I heard you interviewed, but I'm seeing a different side of you now and a much deeper side of you now via your podcast. And I love the conversations you have. And I find them therapeutic as well. So um, every time I'm done with one of your podcasts, I feel like I've learned three or four new things that I didn't know before or that can help me in my life. And, and frankly, with this podcast, which I've been doing for 17 years, that's one of the things I try and do with our conversations is I want our audience to leave with a few tangible takeaways that they can apply to their life immediately. And they feel like, wow, that was worth listening to. Yeah. The gems. It's like, I, I haven't just a simple saying, it's not mine. It's Ram Dass's, but it's, we're all just walking each other home. Mm -hmm. And I really feel that's true. And so I'm so grateful that you said that. Thank you. I, I, I truly just enjoy people. I'm fascinated by them. Actually, if anyone asked me what I would have done if I wasn't a race car driver, many times I've said I would have been some kind of psychologist or a shrink or whatever you want to call them, a therapist. And um, because I'm fascinated with people as well as like figuring things out. And so helping people and like how to get, how to feel better, how to be, how to be living better and happier. And so, um, so I, I, I do, I do psychoanalyze my guests a little. <laughs> That's good. I do, I do too. And I think a good podcast host is naturally curious, right? Mm -hmm. and, and you're trying to put yourself in the seat of your listeners. 
So that you're hopefully asking some of the questions that your listeners would want to hear from the guest. But walk me through your process. What's Danica Patrick's process when preparing for a podcast? Um, So it's kind of had a little bit of an evolution because at first... um, it was a little, there was a little more, more people involved and I've streamlined it. And partly because I found that I didn't really need as much. Um, but I would, I, I, now my process is I used to get like 15 pages from a, from a, a researcher and I'd go through and it was really good. A lot of great information. And, um, I'd circle as I went along and write notes in the margin. And then I'd go back over all my pages and kind of, formulate uh, like the best, I'd pick the best topics that I was interested in. And then I would start to organize a flow for it and then write those out. And so I'd write it all out and then I'd rewrite it again on a little note card. So by the time I've read it, organized it, wrote it once and then wrote it again, I don't usually need it. Um, But that was kind of the long version of how I used to prepare. Now I find that I have more trust and tell me if you, this, you can relate to this. But there's um, like really listening to the words being said so that because there's always a question in the information that they're giving. There's there's naturally another level of curiosity, a layer deeper or something, um, something, uh, a branch off of it. Um, So I trust that flow a little bit more than I used to. Um, I just never wanted to get into a position with someone where I sat there and went, so, uh, what do you, um, what's next? You know, like, I, right. mean, I just can't do, I feel so bad. I have, I feel like I try and put myself to a pretty high standard for my interviews because I've been interviewed so many times and right. like, I, you know, know what I like and don't like and know what's appropriate and not. Um, so a couple of two rules that I just don't do in my interviews, um, is I just, I don't dig into the stuff that is inappropriate or that I know that they wouldn't want to go into and I just try and not a- ask typical questions. Right. And so um, uh, so those are sort of my two general rules for myself. Um, and now I, I pretty much listen to a podcast. Like if I, I just search their name and like Apple, like iTunes, you know, Apple podcasts. And sure. I just I just go in and I find whatever they've done recently. I listen to one and I make notes. Sometimes I'll listen to another one. Sometimes I'll just... Google or research some information, but generally with one podcast, I can usually extract enough topics that I'm curious about. Um, And it's not that I'm asking the same question that's being asked in the interview. It's that they've said something in their answer that is pertaining to how I like to do my interview. And I'm like, oh, I know they're willing to go there. And so then I kind of write that down. So um, there's a lot of information in a podcast as you, you know, like listening to them, right? There's just so many gems. And so that's kind of how I prepare now. Sometimes I, I, I do like to always create a flow. I find that um, I don't usually need it, but I like to be prepared with, let's say, either like five topics that I can naturally transition through or like 10 questions. And those sort of 10 questions, um, they, you know, they're, they're just a guide. Um, but, you know, lots of conversations just go all over the place. But it's it's really like what it, Lewis Howes told me a long time ago, based on someone that gave him advice, is mm-hmm. he said, someone told him, he's like, what if I'm not interesting? He's like, no, no, no. He's like, you don't have to be interesting. You just have to be interested. And I was like, oh, that's so good. And so between that and listening to 
listening to understand versus listening to respond is another one that is really helpful in the process. So yeah, it's come, it's, it's come along. I look at guys like, um, I mean, you've been doing this for 17 years. You might be the OG of podcasting. Oh. You've been doing it for 17 I've years. I've been doing it a long time. Wow. Um, but I look at guys like, you know, Joe Rogan and people who sit there and talk to just all kinds of different people for right. two, you know, two plus hours. And I'm like, you know, that's next level kind of stuff. Um, and so intelligent, but that's, I don't know if you find this too, but in, in doing this, so many interviews, like you learn so much. Right. And I think people want to know you did your homework a little bit, right? So it's not the car wash as I call it, where tell me about your book or tell me about your latest project where anyone could ask that question. So do your homework. And then I think you do a really nice job of even if you don't know the person, like we're talking for the first time right now, we've never had a conversation before. You do a nice job of making your audience feel like you've known this person. And, you know, there's a good rapport there because sometimes it can be an awkward conversation, but I don't get that when I listen to your interview. Some people I can tell that you've been friends with them for a while and you've known them and there's a, a friendship or a rapport there, but other people, some of the experts you've had on your show that you don't have a relationship with, it still sounds like a comfortable conversation. And that's the thing about podcasting. I used to be in radio. Radio, you got to take breaks every 10 minutes and it's very structured. And podcast conversations could go on for 90 minutes or two hours or however you want. And it's very conversational and free-flowing and organic versus, okay, this is an interview and we have to check all these boxes during the interview. and. So I just like the listening format a lot better. It's kind of how we speak, right? Exactly. Podcast is basically how we speak. So it, you really feel like you're in the room in a conversation or sitting, listening to two people on a couch, you know, like you, because it's the way that you'd speak if you were sitting around at home and so, um, or, you know, out to lunch or something like that. So, yeah, I mean, the podcast world is obviously blown up and I'm glad because I, I remember when I first, I was promoting my book back at the beginning of 2018 and, um, and I only did a few interviews. I did Joe Rogan, I did Rich Roll, and I did Lewis Howes. I think were like the three podcasts I did, which are great, big mm-hmm. podcasts. Right. And, um, I had never done any. And of course, at first I'm thinking to myself, like, how long am I going to be? How long is this interview? Like, and then after I did them, I was like, that's a lot of fun. Actually, yeah. I would rather do a couple of those a day than bounce around in and out of a car to do a five to seven minute segment in a studio. Um, so yeah, I think that it's, I'm so glad that people are resonating with the long format because, um, you know, it's just so much deeper and more informational. And I love that there's a hunger out of people that they are wanting that because to me, it tells it's, it's a, it's, it's growth. It's that you're, you, you know, you're, you're, you're able to keep your attention on something for an extended period of time and also like really learning and, and getting into a conversation. Um, so I'm glad. Well, I binged your, your podcast in preparation for this Aww. conversation. And then I'll tell you, I listened to one of my favorite podcasts that I've listened to in a long time. You and your sister on Sibling Revelry with oh. Oliver and Kate Hudson. Yeah. Because I have siblings as well. And I always think like, what would it be like if I did a podcast with them, with my siblings? And, you know, I learn a lot about you. And and like I said, at the beginning of this conversation, I feel like via your podcast, 
I've learned more about you and just listening to those than I did during your career. And it's not any offense about, but like you said, you would do five to seven minute interviews. You do quick radio hits. It wasn't a deeper conversation. So kudos with the pretty intense podcast. I think it's fantastic. I'm always anxious for the next episode to come out to listen to it. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of people that have tried podcasting post-career. I'll be honest with you. Some of them do a good job and some don't do a great job. I think you do an outstanding job. So oh, man, that's really cool of you. Thank you. Thank you. I'll keep doing a couple more episodes. I, I'm interviewing Alanis Morissette on oh, Wednesday. So wow. I'm excited for that just because she's been always like a, a an all-time favorite of mine. But I've been lucky enough to interview some really cool people. So you know what it's like. It's like, who am I talking to? You're right. like, so cool. Yeah, it is cool. Because again, be, being curious and just wanting to be curious about talking to that person, I think is, is great. I saw Alanis Morissette's first arena show. I live in Portland, Oregon. So mm-hmm. she did her first arena show in Portland. And it was really funny because, you know, she's just like this badass woman and has all this energy. But before the show, she's like walking around backstage with a teddy bear and she was really quiet. And then she gets on stage and it's just electric. And you're like, oh, my God, she's so quiet in her normal life. But on stage, she's just like this power player. It, it was really it was cool to see. But that had I think, been back in the like Jagged Little Pill days. Though. It was. It was, it was 1995. It was her very first arena show. Yeah. That's so, so cool. yeah, she's done a lot since then. Well, congrats on well, that. Had a lot of great music come through. Yeah, Portland has had a lot of great music come through and a lot of people like start, you know, kind of in this area and in Seattle. So kind of interesting. All right. I want to talk about some of the other things that you're doing. Uh, You are a wine connoisseur and Mm -hmm. that's not an easy business either. And you've got to be brave to get into that business because it's competitive. And, you know, a lot of people can just stick their name on a label, but you've really been involved in, in your wine brand. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. Well, there's two now. So um, it started off with Somnium, which means dream in Latin. Right. Um, and uh, it's because I just I was in Napa Valley drinking, drinking, swirling some white wine at 10 a.m. because you can. And I thought, man, it'd be so cool to have like, something like this someday. And <clears throat> that's why I called it Somnium, because it was just a dream at that point. Like it was just an idea. And so it's really cool to look at these projects and think, oh my God, that was just an idea. Like that's all it was in my head. And so, um, so I bought the property in 2009 and planted the vineyard and started from scratch. And, um, and so that finally, a, bo- a bottle was finally for sale in 2017. The 14 vintage was for sale in 2017. So that, that was a long project. Yeah. And, but the, but the cool thing is, is it really led into the next one, which was um, one that launched last year called Danica Rosé. Mm-hmm. And um, and so that's a grown and made in Provence, France, Rosé. Um, man, we've had a really cool promotion that keeps getting put off every year. We were supposed to launch, well, over a year ago at Monaco at the oh, Grand wow. Prix wow. with the yacht and the whole thing. And, and then it was supposed to be this year and then that got canceled again. And, um, but anyway, it's been a really cool project. So, um, I've got really good partners with that one. And, um, so that's growing really fast. Um, so yeah, I mean, people ask me, why are you in the wine business? And my answer is really simple. And that's just that I like to drink it. When someone comes to you with an idea for a partnership or an endorsement, or 
when you're thinking about starting a, a wine company, what are the elements that you need to see in order to say, you know what? Yeah, I'll, I'll sign on the dotted line and, and I'll be your partner or I'll start this business. Mm. Well, the first one I've spent a lot of, it's all my own money and I've spent a lot of it. And um, so it's a long game project. Mm. It's passion. Um, really the core of it is like getting back to like, there's a, there's a dot on the top and it's a, like a, you are here, like in a hotel room or somewhere like marking the spot. And it's sort of a, a trigger to hopefully get you to read the back label and then remember, cause it's in the back label, but to be present. And so really the message and the feeling is to be present with the company you're with and share and, um, and, um, really connect with the people, people around you. Uh, and so, you know, that, that is really, uh, that was my baby. And then the Danica Rose project was a, a few guys that got together that were, you know, they were interested in making, making wine. And so we made, we decided ma- making some Rose and, and as far as me being involved, it's like, I couldn't think of a more authentic thing to do than make rosé in front and France. Like it's the hometown of Provence is where rosé, it's like the birthplace of rosé. So, you know, I just think that that for me is so parallel with me as a brand, just being authentic. So um, that was, you know, but we're all partners, we're all equal partners. And we, you know, we, we put in the effort and I mean, I feel like, you know, maybe some put in more than, than others, like, uh, the guy who's out there, you know, getting it sold and everything, but, um, but we all play our part, you know, a critical part. So, um, I guess, you know, when it comes to making a decision what to do, it's like, it's all roots and sort of passion and curiosity and interest. Like, are you really actually into it? And then do you feel like you have a good team around you? Power up premium trail mix. They're a partner of ours. I know you're one of their endorsers what led to you wanting to work with them i love their trail mix and, and frankly i didn't know the difference between premium trail mix the really healthy stuff and the stuff filled with candy until i started eating their trail mix yeah well i i remember hearing just how the nuts are even prepared like <clears throat> the fruits and the nuts just there's different just like with anything like there's a doctor that went to you know um where do doctors go to Medical school, Harvard? No, that's law. Princeton, Yale, yeah, that whatever. Right, those doctors, and then there's doctors that come out of somewhere that you've never heard of, and yet they're all doctors, right? And so it's like trail mixes. It's like there's ones that come out of you know the top echelon sort of productivity and and processes, and then there's ones that are not as good, and or maybe you wouldn't know about them. They're smaller. Um, and so, uh, actually usually the problem is, is they're bigger sometimes. Um, but I, I feel like when I heard about just how the high quality process that was used for, for the trail mixes, I was like, wow, I had no idea. And since health is so important to me, I was like, this is, um, a really great company in total alignment with my, um, core values and, um, and then just use like truly u- eating them and using it and grabbing the little to-go bags when I'm traveling and, um, shoot at Thanksgiving or Christmas, I made like, you know, almond bark bars, like white chocolate almond bark bars with one of the, one of the trail mixes. So, um, I just really, I really, I I'm fortunate enough in my career where I don't have to align with people that aren't in alignment with, with me and my values. So, 
um, power up was a really easy decision. Are you a cook? Do you like to cook? And, and yeah, just, I love wow. it. Do you have a good setup for your, uh, your kitchen and everything? And Oh yeah. What's yeah. your go-to? What, what's the go-to Danica Patrick? Uh, if, if you have company coming over, family, friends, whoever, and, and you're going to make your best thing, what is it going to be? Um, I don't know. I mean, I guess, you know, to be honest, I do make a pretty good steak. I know that sounds really silly. It's, I don't usually go out to eat for stuff like that because I can make it so well. Um, but I mean, probably like just something simple. I, I really, I also follow a pretty much paleo diet. So I, um, I, I mean, that limits a lot of things. Um, but I mean, I'll make like steaks and salmon and some roasted vegetables and, some kind of potato of some sort, maybe roast those too, or shoot, you can like wedge up sweet potato, put it on the grill. I mean, that works too. I mean, there's just, I, I cook really simply, but it ends up being a lot about texture and food and, and flavor combinations. I follow you on social media. We said earlier, Danica Patrick on Instagram and Twitter. Some of your workouts that you do, my God, like your, your core, I ride the Peloton and, mm-hmm. and, you know, I hike and things like that, but I'm watching some of your workouts and they're, they're next level. So I'm impressed. Thank you. Well, I, you know, I, I do like, I love fitness. I love working out. Like I, I truly just like it. Like I get excited to work out. And as soon as I write down a workout, it happens. It's like, um, it's like an automatic manifestation technique in the gym. Like just write down the workout and go, but here's where most people get stuck. They don't know how to write a workout. And so, um, but I started doing CrossFit, which I just really love and enjoy, um, probably back in 2013. And I don't do pure CrossFit, but I do a lot of CrossFit and, um, uh, I just, I just think it really gives you good tools to not only show, show how to build a workout, but also, um, and there's also so many resources for that too, websites, programs, Instagram accounts. Um, but also, uh, it shows you what real working out is and it should hurt and it's painful and you get really, you don't just get out of breath. You like lying, laying on the ground when you're done. So I like that. I mean, can you please tell our audience once and for all, and I think most people know this, but being in a race car like you were, you have to be in incredible condition and your core has to be so strong because you're, you're in that car for hours and you're going so fast. Like it really does take, you have to be in incredible shape. Hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, most people, you know, I mean, there's, there's definitely other sports that peak in other ways, but sure. to keep your focus. I think that one of the things that we like overlook in general is just the, you know, the mental capacity and the focus. And, and whenever the body starts to distract, um, through pain or uh, fatigue or discomfort, you're pulling from the mental side of things. So, um, there's probably very, very few sports that actually keep you have to keep you, you have, where you have to stay focused for four hours, you know? Right. Um, I mean, even under caution, you know, you're saving fuel and doing all kinds of things. You're making pit stops. So there's really not a lot of time to relax. Um, so uh, no timeouts. So, um, so I think that, uh, I, I just, 
it's really important to be hydrated, really important to have good focus. It's really important to have upper body strength, neck. I mean, yeah, actually, I'll, this is funny. I was, I went skiing for the very first time about a month ago okay. and I was going down the hill and it was like a tough blue. And I it was like, my first, it was like, I had taken two lessons and then day three was like, I've had it. And, um, so I'm going down and I just yard sail it. Like I just, I just fly off the handlebars and <laughs> yard sail it. I love that yard <laughs> sail it down the mountain and my head like whipped back really hard. Ooh. And I woke up the next day and I was like, Oh man, I haven't had neck pain like this since I went to Sebring for the first test of the year in an Indy car every year. Cause it seems like an Indy car, we'd always go to Sebring or somewhere like that in Florida um, and go, you know, get in a car for the first time of the season and the acceleration and deceleration and lateral loads are lateral loads. Not so bad because you have heads around, but like vertical, like forward and backwards under braking and acceleration, like your neck would, you know, remember what it had to do again and it'd be painful so it took a skiing accident for me to remember just like what it took for neck strength but yeah there's lots of little things with um with driving that uh you know you need to be really strong and have a lot of endurance for before i let you go uh i see by following you on on social you're doing some traveling and some adventures and trying things like skiing for the first time What's next for you, whether it's business-wise or just what lies ahead? Because, you know, it seems like you're in such a great position right now. You've got this blank canvas and you can paint it however you want. Well, I mean, there's a lot of new stuff going on. I mean, the podcast isn't that old. So, you know, you know, this summer will be two years, but um, still doing that and enjoying it. And um, the, you know, the new wine that launched last year, Danica Rosé, as well as Somnium, um, then there's some other projects in the works. Um, I think that, you know, getting into, I'd really like to try to transition some of the, some of the techniques that I've learned through interviewing people into maybe doing, um, special specials with, I think, you know, pairing an athlete, me with athletes is a, is a good thing. I mean, it could go with anything, um, as I actually interview mostly not athletes on the show, but um, I think it's a good way to retap that audience um, that followed for so long and also then um, be able to use some new, new, new skills. So doing like special features and things like that around big events, I think would be really cool. Um, but then, you know, there's a show in the works that's based on, you know, women and the things that they've accomplished and, and me hosting that. So uh, that's in the works right now. So, yeah, there's always there's always something going on. Danica Patrick, you can find her on Twitter and Instagram at Danica Patrick. She's joining us on behalf of Power Up Premium Trail Mix. Make sure to listen to her podcast, Pretty Intense, on iTunes and podcast platforms everywhere. Danica, it's been a pleasure. Continued success to you. And uh, thanks for joining me on Sports Business Radio. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for being so prepared. I appreciate it. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. I am on my underdog fantasy app every night underdog fantasy is the official gaming partner of sports business radio it's the fastest growing fantasy app ever released with investors that include mark cuban kevin durant adam schefter jared goff and many more the underdog fantasy app is available at underdogfantasy.com on ios or on android i love it i play a lot of pick 'em. 
I do rivals. There's best ball. It makes watching the games a lot more fun. So we've got a special offer for sports business radio listeners. New users can get up to $100 matched on their first deposit when they use the code SBR. So download the app at underdogfantasy.com and then enter the promo code SBR to get up to $100 to play with. Now, here's Brian's interview with Tim Howard from July 2019. Joining us now is Tim Howard. He is the goalie for the Colorado Rapids. You can find him on Twitter at Tim Howard GK, like goalkeeper. You can find him on Instagram at Tim Howe One. Legendary American goalkeeper who earned the nickname Secretary of Defense for his heroics in the 2014 FIFA World Cup. He's winding down his 22-year career in pro soccer. Longtime goalie for the U.S. men's national team. Leader of Howard's Heroes Helping Those with Tourette Syndrome. He's author of the book The Keeper, A Life of Saving Goals and Achieving Them. Tim, thanks for joining me on Sports Business Radio. You announced before the start of the MLS season that this season would be your last as a player. I know many athletes have struggled with the right time to step away. When does it feel right? How did you arrive at the decision that now was the time to step away? Uh, I don't think there's ever an easy time or a good time to step away, you know, unless you can unless you can somehow time it where you're lifting the trophy and you're walking out in, uh, in the sun, sun setting, you know. But um, for, for me, there's other things I want to do. There's other things I want to I challenge myself with. And, uh, you know, 40 seemed like a, like a pretty – Good time to hang it up. I've been doing this for over 20 years. So, you know, I was, I just, I was very content with, am very content with, uh, with my decision. Yeah. You've had such an amazing career. I know there's a lot of people that listen to this and, and you play a very specific position goalie. What are the traits that you need to have to play goalie? For instance, my daughter plays goalie and I always tell her, you got to be fearless <laughs> if you're going to play goalie. That's one of the traits I think you need to have. But what else do you need to have if you're going to play goalie? Yeah, I think it's fearlessness. One, I think you have to be, I think it's a very cerebral position. You know, I used to, I used to call goalkeepers crazy, but I think it's morphed into a very cerebral position. Um you know, you have to have a you have to have a short memory. I think you have to be able to, you know, not get too ahead of yourself if you made a few saves. You know, because the next one could be your demise. And I think if you've you know, one, you know, one or two blips or or blunders, I think you have to be able to for, forget those and make the next game winning save. And so, you know, it's very much a Jekyll and Hyde type of situation. You recently reached seventeen hundred and fifty saves for your career across MLS and English Premier yeah. League. Congrats on that. Is there a save that's a lot of saves but is there you know one or two that stands out that you're like wow that that's definitely going to be in the memory bank for a long time well it just means it just means i'm old i think if you do it for a long enough <laughs> you'll get you'll get over 700 saves that's that's the easy part um look i, I think that what you know there's god bless uh social media right i was making a lot of really good saves way before that so, right um i think the ones that stand out Stand out are probably the ones later in my career because they've had the most uh, they've had the most coverage. If that makes sense, because uh, <clears throat> you know one of, the one that I like that seems to always get all the play and up there with my all time great saves is the one against I was playing for Everton against Southampton and I go I go back over my uh, back over my head and over my shoulder and make a save and pick it out of the uh, you know out of the right from underneath the crossbar into sunny day on Merseyside, which rarely happens as well. And so 
there's a lot of there's a lot of meaning in that particular say, but I, I do genuinely like that one. Take me into the mind, like you said, cerebral. It's penalty kicks, and it's you, and it's the striker, and there's so many different scenarios that can play out. And I've always thought that's one of the most difficult things in sports is to be the goalie in that situation. How do you kind of analyze everything in real time and decide what your strategy is going to be? Yeah, look, I think that, you know, people people say that uh, they do their homework and they know where the, the shooter's going. I, I think that's part of it. I think ultimately, though, I, I think it is instinct, right? I think it's still it's still mano a mano, and and you have to look for clues the same way you would do, you know, if if the guy was bearing down on you on a breakaway, or you were trying to read another situation. You're still looking at the clues of body language, the the timing in the game, the moment, the score. There's a, there's a bunch of factors that you have to kind of chuck into this algorithm within you know a, a minute or so uh, from the time the penalty's called to the time that uh, the guy steps up and takes the shot that you have to start to figure things out. And, you know, I think luck plays a major factor, but uh, yeah, there's some bravado in it as well. So I know a few minutes ago, we talked about the fact you're retiring at the end of the year. I see you've already gotten into team ownership, which is something yeah. that uh, it seems like you're very interested in. What's the ultimate goal there? I know a lot of athletes say, I want to be running a team or I just want to have part ownership. Like what's the next chapter for you in that regard? Well, you know, I think I've been, I've been doing, uh, getting my feet wet and and doing all the things that uh, are asked of me as a part owner. And uh, I've enjoyed it. It's been difficult, you know, on a very good level. And so um, I think, I think more than anything, I've, I've been doing a little bit from afar, if that makes sense, because I've kind of had this day job uh, <clears throat> of playing. So once I'm finished, being able to get into the office at 7 a.m. And, and keep long hours and not leave until the day is done and making sure that, you know, all the all the phone calls and emails are sorted. And that that's what I'm looking most forward to is really trying to help put my stamp on, on the club as a whole. And then, you know, to answer the question where that goes in the future, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I, I want to continue to <clears throat> stay in the game at a high level on the executive side of things and, uh, you know, see what happens from there. Are you more interested in building a roster or are you more interested in the business side or is it both? Yeah, uh, both. It's, I think, you know, the roster building and what and what goes into creating a football club <clears throat> is, is, is my expertise. Uh, thankfully, you know, with my co-owners, Peter Freund and, and uh, our president and owner, Craig Unger, um, they're incredibly business savvy and they've been um, so generous in, in allowing me to learn on the fly. And so, yeah, I, I think right now I know where my expertise lies, but also from the business angle, uh, that's massive for me. And, and that's only something that I can, that I can learn as I, as I go through this process of, of being a part of an ownership group. I say to athletes all the time, I think it's great when you, you know, during your playing career, there's a lot of people that want to be around you, right? And they want to learn from you. I think it's great when an athlete befriends business people and while they're still playing, understands the opportunities in business when you're done playing. And I think it's great that you have done that. At what point did you say, you know, you know, maybe I'm five years away from ending my career or 10 years away from ending my career. I need to start looking towards the business aspects of post-career. 
<clears throat> yeah. Well, look, I think that I think to your point, uh, which I agree with, you know, when you're an athlete, you're relevant. And when you are no longer an athlete, it's very difficult to keep your relevancy. And I don't mean that to slight anybody. I, I just mean that uh, when my when my shirt is no longer hanging in the team shop, all the kids are going to buy whose shirt is hanging in the team shop. And that's whoever's next. And that's what we love about sports, right? And um, I think you have to create uh, relationships and nurture them while you have a level of relevancy because otherwise then you're just swimming upstream. If you can create a, a relationship with someone while you're still playing and then gain trust and friendship and loyalty and all those things, then that will then transcend the game. But if you don't have that, once you leave the game, then you're then you're 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 scratching at the door trying to get opportunities and begging people for um, you know a chance to a chance to prove yourself. And so I think you have to do that when you're relevant. I want to talk a little bit about your playing career, your legendary playing career. When you got the call from Manchester United to come play with them, what was that like? I mean, that's got to be one of the the highlights of your career, I would imagine. Yeah, look, I said it, I said it time and time again. It was uh, it was it was incredible. I was 22 years old, I think, you know, and we all like to pretend that we're 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 grown at that age. But now that I'm 40, I look back at 22 and realize I was a, you know I was just a little baby. And <clears throat> getting that call, I've, I've said it all along. Um, if if I never played for Manchester United a day in my life, and I simply got that phone call, that would have sustained me for a long time. Wow! Uh, it was pretty. It was pretty incredible to have a club like that even say, "Hey, look, you're on our radar, and we're we're keeping tabs on you." You know, I was floating on cloud nine for a good year. Um, so yeah, it was it was a, a pretty poignant moment in my career, and, and the fact that it came to fruition. I then spent. 13 years in the Premier League, three of which with Manchester United. I'm, I'm a very lucky boy. And so, I, I, you know, I look back on that with fond memories. What did you learn there that has helped you since you returned to MLS? Uh, self-belief. I think it's helped me when I, with returning to MLS with my entire career. You know, I'm a big, uh, I'm a big believer that self-belief and, and, and confidence um, are two different things. And, and oftentimes they, they get misconstrued. Um, you know, confidence is something that you gain by winning and losing. And, and sometimes you're in control of that and sometimes you're not. You know, self-belief is simply this ability to get out of bed every morning and say, look, I'm, I'm good enough to do it and I'm going to go do it today. I might fail, but I'm good enough to do it. And so there's a massive difference for me between self-belief and confidence. And, I, and, and that was one thing that stuck with me. I had some, I had some highs and lows, that, you know, uh, over, over in my 13 years in England. And I think that um, that doesn't make me special. I think every player goes through that. And then I think what carried me through is always that ability to believe in myself. And probably sometimes it was unwarranted, you know. Maybe there were times where I shouldn't have believed so much, but I did, and it got me through. Where did you get that belief and that confidence? I know sometimes it's a parent or it's a friend or sure. a coach. Who Who is that person yeah. for you or those people? A little bit of everything. My village, you know. I think it's, you know, my mom has had a great upbringing, and my mom is, is – uh, is uh, selfless and you know works uh, works for everything she's ever had. And I've had an incredible coach when I was a kid of ten years old who believed in me. And Tim Mulqueen, uh, again, that's well documented. And just you know, people who were in my corner who, who you know I had the best of friends who I'm still dear friends with today over twenty years. And uh, just people who, who wouldn't let me fail, who refused to believe anything other than uh, in my in my greatness, which was again <laughs> ill advised at times, but. Uh, I had I had a really good uh, support system around me. I want to talk to you for a few minutes about U.S. soccer. 
What's sure. the recipe for continuing to grow the game of soccer in the U.S.? I mean, look, I think if you look at all the trends, they're they're trending upward. But, you know, if you're a kid growing up today, you can choose soccer, you can choose football, basketball. There's so many different ways okay. you can go. How do you continue to grow the game of soccer in the U.S.? Well, I think, look, there is, a, unfor- unfortunately for soccer, there are, there are too many sports to choose from in America. When you go outside of our borders, soccer is the only thing that matters in in, in every other country in the world. And so we're at a, we're at a distinct disadvantage right from the get-go. <clears throat> I think the best way to, to continue to go to sport is to not oversaturate it. And, and what I mean by that is, uh, you know, are there people who care about soccer in America? Yes. Um, large numbers. Are, are, we, are we gaining fans week by week? Yes. But I think if you oversaturate uh, markets, I think you're destined to fail. So we need to continue to concentrate on what's working, um, both with our national team and um, you know with our with with the MLS and the USL and all and all and all the leagues that that are, are creating and committed to developing uh, talent. And look, I think I think the difficult part of the question is how do, how do we how do we create uh, and develop young talent? It's difficult in our country. It's very very difficult because there's so many there are so many. Uh, avenues, whether it's hockey or basketball or baseball or football, or, uh, you can choose anything. And, um, you know, we, it, it costs a lot of money to play soccer in America, you know, whether anyone wants to believe that or not. And so I think a lot of the Latino community and, and the African, African-American community at large is missing out in this country. Uh, and so are, so are lower socioeconomical um, communities because, unfortunately, my daughter plays on a very good team, and that very good team costs a lot of money to mom and dad, you know, and so we're 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 lucky that we can we can afford to do to do that and put her on the best teams, but it's not the case everywhere. See, we could do a whole podcast on what yeah. I think of the pay to play soccer and the elite yeah. soccer, and does that path get you yeah. to college or pro yeah. like you or your parents want you to be, or you know if you're just playing on your high school team or your college, you know your junior college team, does that get you where you need to go? It's an interesting conversation, but like you said, it can cost a lot of money to take that yep. path. And I don't know that it necessarily costs as much money if you're a basketball player or a football player or a golfer or lacrosse player or something like that. No, look, I don't think it does. And I think that again, it's a longer it's a longer podcast. But you know, when you look at you look at what basketball is to the inner cities of America, what you look, what you see hockey uh, to all the kids growing up in you know in uh, in Canada. Right, it's it's a pickup sport. It's all it's ever been, you know. And that's what soccer is in the rest of the world, right? And uh, and I think that's probably a model that we should look at. Not 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 exclusively, but certainly that should be on offer, um, you know, to to players in America. You just referenced your daughter. I have a daughter who I referenced earlier. Women just won the World Cup. The U.S. women. Sure. Um, you know, there's this big debate going on right now yeah. about equal pay and. How do you, and I know this is a probably a whole other podcast too, but how do you even start to address that issue knowing that the women's team in the United States has performed at a very high level and, yes. you know, they bring in revenue and they, you know, they check all the boxes and I know that, you know, they're trying to get equal pay. And again, as, as dads to daughters, I always want my daughter to have equal rights with anyone else. How do we address that issue? 
Well, I think the starting point for the argument is flawed. I think the, I think the starting point for for uh, what anyone should get paid, particularly when it comes to U.S. soccer and the women's team versus the men's team, I think I think we need to take the emotion out of it. And unfortunately, when you look at the New York Times and all the news and all and all the headlines, all 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 people want to talk about is the emotional side of it. And I think when it comes down to getting paid, it sounds simplistic. It's dollars. It's dollars and cents. It's very simple. And U.S. soccer is no different than any other um, employer in the sense that um, people should get paid and will ultimately, whether it's my opinion or not, will ultimately get paid based on on the bottom line, revenue, dollars and cents, simple as that. And until until there's really hard facts and numbers that are getting thrown out, thrown out and debated, it's not really a debate. Right now, the only thing I the only thing that I ever read is. Um, is if you if you're not on the side of equal pay, then you're sexist, and that's that's the stupidity, right? Like there's so much more to this argument uh, than just that, and so I think we need to take the emotion out of it, and we need to talk real dollars and cents. And if you start talking real dollars and cents, then I think then you can have a real debate and a real argument. No, I agree. Uh, it's interesting to see what NWSL is doing since the World Cup. They've signed a deal with Budweiser. Their games are on ESPN. Do you think U.S. soccer is doing enough to promote the NWSL? Um, I think that the NWSL is a fantastic league. I think I think it's the best league in the world, right? For when you look at women's soccer, it's hands down the best league in the world. Um, so absolutely, they should be partnered with. Um, the biggest brands going, particularly in America. Um, yeah, I, I again, I don't have all the numbers, and so I don't like to speak out of turn. I think U.S. soccer has, in terms of get, helping to get the league up and running and help it become sustainable, I think U.S. soccer has certainly played their part. So, um, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be so quick to rake down over the coals um, again. But I don't have all of that information. Okay, that makes sense. So you've played English Premier. Obviously, you're playing in MLS. Where does MLS rank now as a league globally, in your opinion? Because I know for years they've been really trying to improve the caliber of play and signing the best players like yourself. Where do they stand right now? Tough. It's tough to, you know, it's it's such an ambiguous question because it's, you know, we don't play in competitions that pit us um, on our best day against against European competition. Like we can, right. we can try and judge friendlies and say, oh, it's a, such and such is playing a European-based team, but you know, again, the, the, the margins aren't always the same, right? Because you're not always playing the same team. Maybe it's the second team or whatever. So it's difficult to say. Look, I think that the fact that you can you can bring over Slatan Ibrahimovic and a Wayne Rooney and Carlos Vela, guys who clearly have some of the best European pedigree going, and um, and certainly South American pedigree when you look at uh, Atlanta United. And they can dominate the league. You know, it's not like an old man league. Um, well, in my case, it might be, but and for, for, <laughs> for most for most of these guys, they're do, you know they're dominating the league. And so clearly, um, I think I think you see that we're able to attract uh, global talent, and you know these guys can compete um, and make their MLS clubs better. And so you know I, I think you start there again. What does it look like from a result standpoint? I don't know. It's it's, it's too tough to tell. Um, you know who, who who would win if this team played? Well, it's it's a difficult exercise. But for the you know for players like Wayne Rooney and Carlos Vela and 
Slattery and Behimovic, to just name a few, these guys clearly could earn contracts at very good European clubs and chose MLS. Um, and that's a massive statement for the league. I want to talk about your endorsement partners. You've worked with a number of different companies yeah. uh, over the years, Nike being you know, a longtime partner of yours. And I ask this yeah. to athletes all the time when I have them on the show. What do you look for in your endorsement partners? Yeah, I think, you know, what, I, what I've tried to do is, uh, as the years have gone gone by, I try not to dilute my brand, uh, my, my own personal brand, meaning I, I don't really, I don't sign off on just anybody who's willing to throw money at me, you know. Um, we all work hard and we all try and earn money, but, um, I want it to be the right fit. I want I, I want to have a, a smaller stable of of endorsements and sponsors, um, but the right ones who are committed to long term growth, to uh, you know my success and their own success. Um, you know, lo- loyalty is huge. I like building relationships with the people who I work with at these companies, not just like a hey, where's the camera? Turn the lights on. I'll say the speech and then I go home. I, I want to create genuine relationships with these people. Um, and companies because I think that's important. That's, you know, that's that's how that's how I see it to be the best in regards to um, how, you know who I want to in, in, be endorsing my brand and who I want to be a part of, right? Because as much as as much as I'm I'm throwing their name around, I want my name to be synonymous with good people. And so um, it's not easy. I think at first when you're young, you're like just give me money, you know. Like I'm trying to build I'm trying to build my bank account, not just. Uh, sustainable relationships, but I think it's important that you you build you build those. More and more athletes are looking at equity as part of the yeah. relationship versus it used to just be, hey, here's yeah. a few million bucks, you're our sure. our spokesperson. <clears throat> now athletes are saying, you know what? Instead of the money, I want to invest yeah. in this company. Do you look at those types of deals as well? Yeah, I mean, look at again as I've gotten older, that that's mattered more to me, right? Like you hit the nail on the head. As I said, young young athlete or I look at myself back then, like to heck with buying in. Just give me some money that I can that I can start saving, right? Like, right. <clears throat> um, but yes, as I've gotten older, and you look at some of the elite athletes, I think currently the one that sticks out is LeBron James, right? I think you you begin to see how powerful ownership is. Yeah, it's nice to get a paycheck, and then you go on your merry way. But when you're in ownership, when when you're in ownership, or are an owner. Um, you, you then become relevant at the at the table, and you know we all want to be relevant. I know one of your partners is uh, Wiley X Glasses. Yeah, I yeah. loved the commercial that you and your daughter just did for their <laughs> Youth Force line. How fun yeah. was it to make yeah. that commercial with her? Well, that was the first time. So, like, my daughter, it, it was amazing. <laughs> it was amazing. It was, it was the first time that uh, you know that she had ever been a part of something like that, and it was. Uh, it was a big deal for her and for me, and it was special. And I just remember, you know, my daughter is outspoken and outgoing and 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 boisterous, and you know, she got on set like everybody else, every <laughs> other human who's ever been in front of the camera, and she was nervous. And it, it was it was funny seeing a different side of her, but I thought she nailed it. And uh, you know, being able to to do that together is is something that doesn't come around every day. So I was very thankful for that opportunity. You seem like such a great dad from what I can observe. You know, I again, I have a 14-year-old. It's different parenting now with social media and and oh, yeah. things like that. What do you tell your kids, you know, as far as the most important things as you're trying to kind of coach them through life? Uh, yeah, you know, it's uh, you're right about that. Parenting in 2019 and 2020 is vastly different than back in yeah. 89, but 
uh, as uh, I would imagine. And, uh, you know, there's just a lot more pitfalls, but like anything else, you know, rather than put the blinders on my kids and, um, uh, you know, shelter them, I think it's also massive learning tools, right? Like stumbling and, and faltering are, are, are good moments to teach. And, um, you know, they have a wonderful mother and we have a, we have an incredible, uh, relationship in terms of parenting our children. And, you know, we want them to, we want them to be successful. And I think sometimes you have to use some of these pitfalls for good, right? Like allow them, allow them enough rope, enough leash to kind of, to kind of go and be their own person and, and, um, you know, let them know what's around the corner. And then when those things happen, you kind of circle the wagons a little bit, learn from it and move on. No, I think that's great advice. There's a lot of helicopter parents out there, and oh, uh, yeah. they don't let the kid trip up at all. And then, how do you learn in life? Right, it's true. I, 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 look, I, I think you learn almost so, almost exclusively from your from your failures. You know, the successes are great, but kind of roll with those. But it's, it's in failure that you you have to you have to rethink some things. One of the things I admire the most about you is you were diagnosed with Tourette syndrome. I think sixth yeah. grade. Uh, you have developed the Howard's Heroes program. I absolutely love what you've done with your platform, and I can just tell the difference that you're making in the lives of the kids who meet with you. What do you tell them when you meet with them, or do they have specific questions? Because you really seem to be, you know, kind of the the face of Tourette syndrome for them, and they can look up to you, and they have a role model in you, and I just think it's wonderful. Well, I appreciate you saying that. Uh, we. We started the program with some wonderful people here in our our community relations department at the Rapids, and we, you know, we've been inundated. I have my whole career with with uh, you know letters and and phone calls and emails and uh, op, you know opportunities to meet people, and and I can't always I can't always uh, make those happen. Just just there's just not enough hours in the day to get to everyone. And so what we did was we offered the opportunity for. Uh, kids and families with TS, uh, you know, to come to the stadium. And the greatest part was we, we you know, we, we housed our program here, but we've extended the offer to every away team that we've gone to. And they, and I mean, to, to an organization, they have all been accommodating and given tickets and liaise with the families. And it's been really, really incredible growth. You know, it, it, it was just something we kind of thought about in the off season two seasons ago and it's taken off. And, you know, I, I don't know. I I kind of tell them what I what what uh, you know a little bit of a nutshell of how how it was when I was their age, depending on what age they were. But more than anything, I want to hear their story. You know, they they always have the best questions for me. You know, they write down questions and tell me things and ask me things. But I'm inspired by them. You know, I think that when I was you know when I was a kid, I was it, it's a it's a tough condition to have TS because it's right in your face. It's nothing you can hide. And so you know, I, I I tried to hide it when I was a kid. And I have I meet so many. Uh, teenagers and, and children with, with TS who tell me about standing up in front of their class and um, speaking to their, their teachers and their classmates and telling them what they have. And I'm just like, wow, I, I'm blown away by, by their courage. So I also love hearing their stories. Well, I'll tell you what, I hope you're able to keep it going after you retire. And if there's anything we can ever do via our platforms to help you, please, please let me know. Because like I said, I, I just think it's such an incredible Program. I know you only have a couple of minutes left. Uh, social media. Yeah. 
Are you running your own platforms? Because I see you on Instagram and Twitter. Again, I, I love the pictures that you post, the commercial that you posted with your daughter. You promote your partners really well. You seem to have a good uh, rhythm with uh, how to use social media. Yeah, look, I have a good balance. Uh, you know, between myself and my agency, someone in particular at my agency, we run my social media, and then me- meaning basically, I have access to all of it, and as do they. And so I'm, I'm on there. I'm on there regularly. Um, you know, I, I try and interact as best I can. It's a slippery slope on social media because, you know, you have you have hundreds of thousands of followers, in some people's case millions, and uh, it's it's virtually impossible to appease everyone and make everyone happy. But um, yeah, it, I think I think it can be used for a lot of good. And I think there's also a ton of pitfalls on there. So I think more than anything, you have to be aware of those things. You wrote a book called The Keeper, A Life of Saving yeah. Goals and Achieving Them. A lot of people wait to write their book till they're done playing. You wrote yours yeah. before you were done playing. Why? Well, I thought the timing was right. You know, I think it was right at the, you know, it's probably, probably the apex of your career as a goalkeeper, 34, 35. And, um, you know, I, I wrote it with the hope that there was more chapters to be written or possibly, you know, another book about, you know, other things. What's next? Who knows? Um, but I thought at the time I had I had quite a lot of uh, of a story to tell, and I wanted to do that. Is there anything that you wanted people? I know a lot of people write a book, and they're like, "I hope these are the three takeaways that people have for the book." Or, you know, yeah. did you just kind of write it because it was therapeutic? Uh, you no, know, I think there are takeaways, and I, I think that you know, for me, perseverance and. Uh, and hard work is the solution to any difficulty is the only way to achieve greatness. And, you know, I think I, I, what I wanted to show is, is there was a human, there's, there's a massive human element to me. And I think that, that through a lot of my <clears throat> failures that were highlighted, I, I, I found success. And, and, you know, I think that when people read things like that, you know, you, you can, you can meet them in a moment that's like, all right, you know, I'm going, I'm going through this challenge here myself, but, um, you know, if, if I wasn't working hard, I could work harder. Or if I was working as hard as I can, this is justification that that is the solution. And so there's that element. And obviously, you know, my backstory with family and, and threat syndrome and all those things. I think, you know, any time that I can continue to be a voice for the voiceless with, uh, you know, parents and families with TS, uh, that'll ultimately be my mission. Broadcasting, you've already kind of dipped your toe in the water on that. Yeah. Are we going to see you broadcasting more when your career is uh, wrapped up on the playing field? Yeah, yeah. Look, I think that's. I think that I, I enjoy being in front of the camera. <clears throat> I think broadcasting is something that um, I love to do. There's absolutely no substitute for <clears throat> put on your boots and your gloves and going out there under the lights. Um, so I never, I never kid you on that that, that, that that's the case. But for me. The next best thing is to be in and around sports, whether it's helping to build a team or, uh, you know, dissecting a game from from an uh, analytical standpoint on television. I love it. And I, I work with great people. Um, you know, I, I love the fact that, you know, I'm, I'm with Turner and BR doing Champions League. It is uh, something I, I thoroughly enjoy. And, and look, at it's, you know, you get, you get to my age, you play two decades plus and, you master something and, and now it's time to master something else. It doesn't mean you're good at it from the door, but that learning process and that learning curve is, uh, is something I enjoy. Have you allowed yourself to think about the last time you step onto the pitch and uh, you walk off for the last time, or is that something that you're not going to think about until it happens? 
I thought about it, but I think it'd be I think it's foolish to try and to try and understand what those emotions will be like because it's uh, you, you know I won't be able to. But I also think what's made me successful is my single mindedness, mindedness, my ability to focus on on the task at hand. Right, like if I ever got too far ahead of myself, you and I wouldn't be here talking. And so uh, I, I, I know the date, I know the game, the team, and um, you know I hope it's a victory. But uh, ultimately, it's been one heck of a ride. So I'm, you know I'll, I'll deal with all that when it comes. Tim Howard, you can find him on Twitter at Tim Howard GK or on Instagram at Tim How One. Tim, I got to tell you, I have such immense respect for you as a person and as an athlete, and I wish you nothing but continued success. I know you're going to be just as good post-career with ownership and broadcasting and everything else you're going to put your mind to as you have been thus far. So congrats on a great career, and if there's ever anything we can do from our end, please let us know. Well, I appreciate you saying I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Thanks, Tim. All the best. Take care. You too. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. 5G is here. Is your stadium ready? From an immersive fan experience to efficient game day operations, 5G is transforming sports and entertainment. If you're ready to jumpstart your 5G transformation, look no further than Boingo Wireless. Boingo is one of the largest operators of indoor wireless networks in the U.S. They provide stadiums and arenas with state-of-the-art 5G networks and support teams across the NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball, Major League Soccer, and NCAA. I'm constantly interacting with sports executives, and the reason they love working with Boingo is because Boingo manages 5G and Wi-Fi networks end-to-end, offloading very stretched IT teams. Whether your stadium is looking to support mobile ticketing, cashless payment, or connected operations, Boingo has you covered. But don't just take it from me. Their customers include world-class venues like Soldier Field, State Farm Arena, Petco Park, and University of Louisville. Boingo in 5G. Now that's what I call a win-win. For a limited time, Boingo has a special offer for Sports Business Radio listeners. They're offering a free 5G assessment for your stadium or arena. To get started, simply email sbradio at boingo.com and mention this podcast. That's sbradio at boingo.com. Our thanks to Boingo for their continued support of Sports Business Radio. Well, that's it for this edition of Sports Business Radio. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks to our show staff, Brian Griggs and Josh Blank. And thanks to our partner, Molka Sports, for powering Sports Business Radio. Learn more about them online at molkasports.com. That's M-A-L-K-A sports.com. For Brian Griggs, I'm Brian Berger. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon right here on Sports Business Radio. This and every SBR podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and your favorite listening app. Follow Sports Business Radio on Facebook, Twitter at SB Radio, Instagram at Sports Business Radio, and online at sportsbusinessradio.com. Sports Business Radio is produced by Brian Griggs and Griggs Productions. GriggsProductions.com.